Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Praise the Lord, church. Amen. It is awesome to be back in Mankato in this nice weather. The leaves are changing. Brother Kilman and I don't get to see very many trees in the big city, so it's nice to, to drive around and see. Uh, we are going to go to, uh, it's, it might take you a little while to find it. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, so as you're turning there, I will say uh, some thank yous here, of course, to Pastor Cox for his vision for this conference and his leadership here, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for him in my life. And of course, Brother Lear and Sister Lear, we love them very much. And Amen. thanks to my parents for letting me stay at home while I'm here. That's a good thing. So before we begin reading just a few verses in Genesis, <clears throat> Genesis 1 through 11 is... Possibly the most disputed sections of the Bible, the most disputed parts where people argue very, very, uh, sometimes very heatedly about these first 11 or so chapters. And of course, when we look through, we understand why. You have the creation event, you have the first uh, humans, you have the fall, you have the flood, you have some of these major, major issues. And there are so many conflicting arguments, and a lot of those come in, maybe we could say, from the outside culture. So one really big question that I have for us today is how much of the outside culture do we allow to influence our interpretation of Scripture? So when we are reading Scripture, how much can we take and we can say, well, the Bible says this, and it sounds like this is what the Bible is saying, but we know that the culture says this, therefore, maybe we have to reevaluate what the Bible is saying. So I'm going to, hopefully with God's help, just talk about a situation here that I think is very significant. And at first glance, it it might seem, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, we're going to find out that Genesis is, of course, the first book of the Bible. It is the foundation for everything that we believe in. So if we lose Genesis, well, actually, we lose the entire Bible. And so we're going to look at a couple issues here today. We're just going to read the first five verses It says, in the beginning, how many, we could quote this probably since we were young, a lot of us, in the beginning, God created the heaven, and everybody say the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was what? It was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So a couple objectives that hopefully we can work through today is I have, I have three objectives. The first one is, what is a day? When we are reading scripture, can we accurately define what a single day is. We just read uh, several verses where we hear that word day. So what does that mean? 
The second one we're going to try to look at is Genesis 1-1, is it a summary statement? Now, what I mean by that is, is as Moses is writing Genesis 1-1, is that just an all-encompassing verse that describes everything that God did? Or is it just the first thing that he did in successive creation days? We'll dig that out a little bit more. But then the main issue we come to is number three in our objective list. Is there a gap? A gap of time between verses one and two. So these are my, my goals for today. So if we look at this issue of what is a day, now in the Hebrew, that Hebrew word is yom. So we're going we're gonna to refer back to that a little bit. Y-O-M, there's the Hebrew for those Hebrew scholars in the building. Yom is how we, would, how we would say that. Now, genre is very important. How many of you know that when you're reading a book, it's really good to understand what type of literature you are reading? If you are reading a newspaper or a textbook or even, yes, a love letter, Master Elijah, it's going to be very different. The context is going to be different. The situation is going to, I'm just kidding, bro. You don't got to get mad at me. Um, the situation, the context is going to be very different. Well, when you read the book of Genesis, what we come to find out is that it is what? It's historical, It's a historical genre. We could even maybe label it as historical narrative. It's a story about the history that Moses is telling us this is what happened. There is some poetry involved, but for example, if you go to the book of Psalms and David is writing and he says that uh, the, the Lord, or the enemy rather, has broken all of his bones, that's not literal, that's poetic. David is describing this lowly state that he is in But in this circumstance in Genesis, Moses is not using this poetic form to describe these creation events. He's using historical narrative. He's telling a story. So that's very important because as we know, context is the most important thing when you are reading an item. I teach my students at CCS the three most important things when you are reading scripture is context. The second thing is context. And the third thing is context. Uh, uh, really quick, a really funny one that I, that I saw that I thought was really funny is it was one of those little inspirational verse things, you know, on a little plaque. And it said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the things of the world. And then the caption was, this verse is actually rather scary if you know who said it, because actually the devil said that. So you should not use that as inspiration because the context of the situation, it really matters. Amen. Amen. So why does context matter in reference to a day? Well, just like any word, if you're looking at the context, it could change the meaning of a word. We could, we're not going to, but we could make a very long list of English words that depending on the context, it could be very different. Uh, Well, maybe just one example, we could talk about Sister Mary Horwath, or we could say Merry Christmas, right? They are very different in in uh, the context, in the situation. But here's the issue. When we're talking about yom, when we're talking about day, in its context, the primary meaning is a 24-hour day. 
There's a scholar, an Old Testament scholar named Leopold, and he said, whenever you have the terms in Hebrew, the, the terms evening and morning, they never mean long periods of time. They always mean just a normal day. Whenever uh, that word yom is used with that evening or, or morning, the primary use is just a single day. And by the way, Leopold points out that that construction of that evening and morning, when those words are used in reference to a day, it's used over a hundred times. And that, in that context, it's always a day. It's never a long period of time. But there are a few objections. Yom, the word, does not always mean 24 hours. Yom does not, even when yom is used with a number like the first day or the second day, it, that does not always mean 24 hours. Well, my response would simply be this. No one disagrees that a word can have multiple meanings. Like if you talk back in my day, how many, I'm getting to that age now where I can say that. That is different, obviously, than a 24-hour day. But we have to ask, how does language even work? Because if, how many words could we take and we could say, this word only has one meaning? That's actually kind of rare because many words, most words maybe we could even, we could say, have more than one meaning. But here's the issue. There is usually a normal use. There usually is a primary meaning for particular words. Yes, there may be exceptions, but that does not negate the normal use. And I'm going to give you some examples of what I mean by that in just a moment. But one really great fact that I love, Brother Kilman, is when this, uh, there's a scholar, he just died a few years ago, Charles Ryrie, very great writer out of Dallas Theological Seminary, good Baptist preacher. And this is what he said, in the Pentateuch, which of course we know is the first five books of the Bible, of which Genesis is number one, Moses wrote those books. And Professor Ryrie says that in the Pentateuch, whenever you have the word yom with a number, it is always a single day. Now other people might say, but in the rest of the Bible, there are examples where yom is used with a number and it doesn't mean a day. Well, that could be the case. And for the sake of time, we'll have to look at those another, uh, at another time. But what Ryrie is pointing out, that the single author, Moses, inside of those first five books, whenever he uses yom with a number like a first day or a second day, Moses always meant this is only 24 hours. So let, let me go back to that issue of there may be exceptions, but exceptions don't negate a normal use. Let me give you some examples, because this is kind of a philosophical issue. If there is an exception, does that disrupt a normal use, or is it even logical to use exceptions? Well, let me give you something that I would say is philosophically equivalent. If some abortions, meaning less than 1% of abortions are from cases of, uh, sadly enough, rape or incest, does that mean that all abortions are then okay? That would be, I would say, pretty illogical to use something of less than 1% to, uh, 
to make 100% okay. To me, that's not very logical. Or another one might be to say, Moses died in Deuteronomy 34, so that means he could not have written the entire Pentateuch. That doesn't make sense. So you're going to negate, I don't remember off the top of my head, how many chapters are in the Pentateuch, but it's a very large portion of the scriptures, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way to Deuteronomy. So just because Moses could not have written, uh, supposedly, where he died, that means you're going to throw away the rest of the whole Pentateuch and say Moses couldn't have wrote it, even though like Jesus and you know some of those other guys like Peter and Paul said he did? To me, that sounds illogical. Or what about this one? Acts chapter 8 does not say that the people spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Ghost. Therefore, you do not have to speak in tongues to receive the Holy Ghost. But every other time, what happens? They spoke in tongues, and that's how we know the fruit that they had received the Holy Ghost. So how can you take one example and say that the rest of the examples don't mean anything? That, to me, is not logical. So what about a couple more assertions? Some people would claim that days one, two, and three are long periods of time, but day four is actually when we have a 24-hour day. Well, why is that? Well, because the sun was created on day four. And then they would say <clears throat> days four, five, and six, those are actually normal days, but the first three days could be millions or potentially even billions of years. So what would be some responses? Well, there was light that was created before day four. It just wasn't called the sun. But we know there was light. Here's another issue. Uh, is the earth still rotating? Yes, the earth is still rotating. I had one student say, what about in the, in the Arctic? When in the winter, when the sun doesn't rise, does that mean that we don't have days in, in the Arctic or the Antarctic when it's winter and that you can't see the sun for like three months? No. And another thing that it just... And there are so many people that make that argument, Brother Kilman. The sun was not there until day four. That means you can't have a day until day four. Are you trying to explain in human terms creation, which is kind of a miracle? Don't you think that, that, that God could situate everything as he's creating? He couldn't, you know, kind of hold the earth together? And I don't know, we'll, we'll maybe move on. But <clears throat> when you have that word yom, what we're trying to show is that the normal use, especially in Genesis, is that it is a 24-hour day. So we, let, let's come to, this is kind of, remember, part one. I'm trying to speed up here, Brother Kilman. Don't, don't get mad at me for slowing down here. The, so we have to ask this question, how old is the earth? Well, the Bible doesn't strictly say the earth is this old, but through, through some, some research and through some, uh, some analysis, we can maybe talk about that later, uh, we could say that the earth was created approximately in 4,000 BC. So that, of course, would make it 6, 000, the earth 6,000 years old. Now, wait a second. When I was watching National Geographic... This dinosaur was roaming the earth, and you know, it, however many billions of years ago. So, so how can we read this, and can we trust this? Can we trust what Moses, through the Holy Ghost, is writing to tell us about the earth's history? Because it's not just the earth's history, it's, it's our history. 
And if we lose our identity, we will lose where we are going. If we lose our identity, we lose the whole foundation that we're standing on. So hopefully we have achieved at least a little bit of looking at objective one. What is a day? In this context, we would say that it is a 24-hour day. So then we'll come to this issue of, is Genesis 1-1 merely a summary? Did, did Moses write Genesis 1-1 and it was just this all-encapsulating picture and then some other things happened after that? And then the last one is, is there a gap? So as you probably could obviously tell, I am attacking evolution because evolution, as it is gaining ground in the 17 and the 1800s, you, by the way, Darwin did not invent evolution. There's a, there's a long history of evolution. He just made it probably what we could say he made it popular. But in those, those years within the 1800s, you had these, these Christian pastors that they, they thought Christianity is dying and, and we need to reconcile what, he, what man, uh, what scientists, what humans are finding and we need to, to line that up with scripture so we can save the Bible, so we can save Christianity. And, and they were using this as a witness tool and, and, and Brother Cox, I feel for them, right? I mean, we, we maybe can say um, we're grateful for their concern, but here's the deal. You, you cannot... You can't sacrifice scripture and save scripture at the same time. Because evolution, just on a a quick note here, evolution, when you combine it with the Bible, it runs into many problems. Because if evolution is true, you have millions of years of death. When, when I, I believe I spoke on this last year, when, when the Bible is very clear that death did not come about until mankind sinned. And Paul was very clear in Romans 5. Death came because of Adam's sin. So how can you have millions of years before Adam? Another issue would be, how can you have millions of years of death and all of these terrible things, these animals dying and and Satan falling and all these things, but God still says at the end of Genesis 1, this is very good. Atheists point out, Brother Kilman, you can maybe talk about this later, I don't know. Uh, Atheists talk about how, you know, you Christians that believe in evolution, you believe in a very evil God because how can your God be good and endorse this struggle for life over billions of years? So we're, we're talking about the gap theory, and you'll forgive me, but there's many variations of, of the gap theory. Uh, different names, the ruin, construct, uh, the ruin reconstruction, restitution, I cannot talk, restitution, restoration, there's a lot of R's up there, uh, initial chaos theory, there's a lot of these various terms, <clears throat> but they all have some very common elements Within them. Now, what I would like to do for this next part, and I, I really need to speed up here, um, I'm going to share with you some research that I did in one of my Hebrew classes, and uh, I got a 95 on the paper, by the way. But uh, just to show you that this is this is not just I'm I'm not trying to just bring some Joe Schmo stuff off from YouTube or the street or something. I'm trying to share with you some some good content that hopefully will help us. Amen. So, so what is the gap theory, or what, what, do, what do these issues refer to? 
First of all, you have Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Advocate, advocates of this view would say you have God's initial creation. He created everything. This is a summary. He just created it. But then there's this massive gap of time. We have 1-1, and then there's this huge gap. Well, what's in this gap? Well, again, if you're trying to bring evolution into the Bible, you have to find a way for millions and billions of years because evolution, it must have millions and billions of years. Otherwise, it can't be evolution. So what uh, advocates of this view say is that inside of this gap, you have the billions of years. Well, what was going on in that billions of years? You have Satan's fall from heaven. And we'll kind of dig, dig this out a little bit and, and what's going on and, and why they say this. But then also something that I would say is kind of strange, with all due respect. They say there, there was a group of people that we call the pre-Adam or the pre-Adamic race. There was a bunch of people that were created in that Genesis 1-1. There's this pre-Adamic race and they became all evil, and then God destroyed everything, and then we go, finally, after those billions of years, we get to the reconstruction. And then after 1, chapter 1, verse 2, then we actually start having those actual days, and then we can, we can take the Bible literally, or however you'd like to articulate that. So let's... let's dig into this just a little bit. I, I've highlighted the, the words within verse 2 that advocates of this view are, are really looking at. Because what they would say is this. That word and, well, that's just a mistranslation. That's just a mistranslation. It should mean it should be now, not and. It's indicating that there's a huge gap of time. They would say the Hebrew grammar shows that, that uh, this verse comes way after verse 1. I hope I didn't lose anyone. In short, we would just say advocates of this view say the Hebrew grammar shows that verse 2 comes much after verse 1. And then they would say that word was that's a mistranslation too. That should be became. The earth became this way. Well, what did the earth, what did it become? Well, it became without form and void. That is indicating this, this chaos. And we all know that chaos and sin, all those things go together and, and God can't, God's not going to create something evil and chaotic, so something must have caused the chaos. So they would say, uh, now the earth became without form and void, and darkness, well, God, darkness is a representation of sin. So there, there's something sinful going on here, and then that reference to the deep uh, another part of this view is that there was a flood even before Noah's flood. And this is what they would call the satanic flood, where, where God sent a flood to destroy all the chaos and the darkness that took place within that gap of time. By the way, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of a, a man, a, a very prominent scholar named Bruce Waldke, who is a very prominent advocate of this view. So I'm not, I hope I'm not damaging their viewpoint. 
So we could say this is the recons or the, the altered version of Genesis 1-2. Now, much after 1-1, the earth became formless and chaotic because of Satan, and satanic darkness was upon the face of the deep, so God sent a flood. That is what we come up with. Further scripture that is, is proposed is in Isaiah. Now, I, I, I've left out the quotes. You can look them up. It's just, I, I'm, I'm already going way over my time here. But God states in Isaiah 45 that he did not create the earth formless. So Bruce Waldke and others, they would say, well, if God didn't create the earth formless, it had to come that way from somebody else. Oh, it, it must be Satan. Well, how do you get that? Because Jeremiah uses that term formless and void, which is uh, that, that same Hebrew word, that same Hebrew construction. And well, it's in connection to God's judgment. And of course, formless and void, that's the same terminology in, in verse two that we've been looking at. And so that connection between God's judgment, it must be about Genesis one, verse two. So God is judging something. Well, furthermore, yeah, this really weird verse in the end of Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, and what? Replenish. What does that mean? Doesn't replenish imply that there was something before? Like, if you refill something, it means you had something full before, but now it's empty, so you have to refill it. <clears throat> so, so these are some of the core arguments for this view. Now, I, again, I keep saying I need to go quickly, but I don't want to lose this here. So let's, let's respond to this. Let's answer some of these, these issues. <clears throat> Is Genesis 1-1 merely a summary statement? No. And I will show that to you in a moment, but right now we're just going to say no. Genesis 1-1 is the first act of creation. It is what? In the beginning. It's the beginning of the creation week. <clears throat> Gordon uh, Wenham, he's, he's, he wrote a commentary on Genesis, the, the word biblical commentary, I believe, Brother Kilman, very prominent, very prominent commentary series, and this is what he said. Genesis 1-1 is not merely a summary verse, but it is most natural to interpret the text in a sync, uh, I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> it's the first creative act, and then verse two is the consequence of verse one. So what is he saying? You have verse the you have one one and then you have one two. It just flows. So let's look at a couple other the a couple more of these issues. So I, I just took those underlined words and I'm just going to put them up kind of bullet point by bullet point, and just kind of work our way through here. So when it says when when the argument is it shouldn't be and the earth it should be now the earth well you can see the same grammatical in Hebrew the same grammar in a in a verse like Jonah three three where it says something like Jonah was called by God and he when he when he was called by God what did he do he went down to Nineveh and then it says and Nineveh was a great city. I don't think there were millions and billions of years between when God called Jonah and the fact that Nineveh was a great and mighty city. 
So you have the similar grammatical in the Hebrew, the same grammar construction, and what is it showing? This happened, and then this happened. It's an expansion of the previous phrase. What about the earth became? Well, if you look at some of the, the, the prominent Hebrew grammars, and I can share this information with you later, uh, they, they indicate that that word, that Hebrew word for was or became, all it's indicating is a current state of being. I mean, the, the same word, the same use is used if you were to go to 3.1, and what does it say? And the serpent was subtle. It's just indicating the, the, the current state of whatever that topic is. Well, what about formless and, and, and void or chaotic? Well, many scholars uh, have looked at this, and they say that all that means is emptiness. It's just a region that is not inhabited. There's just nobody living there. So what, what uh, some of these scholars are saying is, when, when God said in Isaiah, well, we'll get there. I actually have a slide for that. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Okay, but, but what, about, what about darkness? Because if you look at the, the words that, that formless and void or formless and chaotic and darkness, it does, not, it does not require sin. Because if you look at the Hebrew for that word darkness, there's darkness used all over the Old Testament that it does not mean sinful at all. It just means dark. Now, are there cases where it could be a symbol of sin? Yeah, but again, context is king. So, for example, I was just thinking today, I'm like, I wonder if that word is is the same Hebrew word. And I went to Exodus 10, where God sends this plague of what? Darkness. And what's the Hebrew word? It's the same word, hoshek. And it just means darkness. I mean, if this was a sinful darkness, God is being really cruel by sending sinful darkness upon the Egyptians, because I thought God didn't, you know, he's not attached to that kind of stuff. But anyways, we can get, um, we can talk more about that later. So here is, uh, here's the, the best that I can see Genesis 1-2, and I'm actually not going to quote it, it's just the King James 1 verse 2, okay? So this is the proper way that we could read Genesis 1-2. So then, really quick, So what is Isaiah saying? This would be the response. God did not create the earth so that it may stay desert-like, but he created it for humans. Well, what about Jeremiah? What, isn't that about Genesis 1-2? No, it's talking about a future event. The judgment of God will be so severe that the land is reduced to emptiness. And maybe Brother Kilman, I don't know if this would be proper, but it's almost like an uncreation. It's not a description of one, two. This is a future event according to the context. Well, what about, this is our last one, what about that issue of replenishing the earth? Well, we have to remember that the King James was written not in 2021. Or I shouldn't say written, excuse me, translated. And so that word replenish All it meant in the 1600s is to fill completely. Think of it as something like the word research. What are you doing? You are studying something completely. So my final slide 
there is always going to be an attack on the word of God. The attack of hath God said from when the serpent is tempting Eve, that was at the beginning of time and it will continue, I believe, until the Lord comes back. So my challenge for us today is that we have to let scripture speak. We cannot be afraid of what the culture is, is teaching, what the, the culture is trying to bring into the church. We need to make sure that we lock the doors, so to speak, and not let in these worldly philosophies. Because, you know, it's, I was thinking and I was praying and I, and I was just contemplating, when do we want scripture, or excuse me, when do we want culture to influence our view of holiness? Or when do we want culture to influence our view of, of salvation? So why should we let culture influence our view of our origins? Because all of these things revolve around that this is the word of God. Can we trust this or not? Because if we can't trust this about the origin of everything, how can we trust it when it says that you should or you need to repent and be baptized in Jesus name and receive the gift of the holy ghost because if it's if one part of this is wrong it cannot be God's word amen so if we could all stand I'll just maybe ask brother Kosh to come and just just pray over this lesson but but that is that is my my challenge for us today in short every part of our belief system rests upon god's word and if we let that cultural element of did god really say this impact our lives we don't just lose genesis 1 1 but we lose everything that is foundational everything that is resting upon it amen amen Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week.